All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, it's good to see everyone. Um, we're in First Timothy chapter 2. And um, I want to go ahead and read uh, verses 5 through 7 and then go back a little and look at 1 through 4. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this great privilege of being here today. Thank you for your word that instructs us. Most of all, Lord, thank you for our ransom, our redeemer, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your son. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know this text, that we might know him in a greater way and that we might be pleasing to him in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in verse 5, he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, what we need to do here is we need to go back and ask ourselves a question. Uh, what, is, what is this connected to? And if we look in verses 1 through 4, He says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then the connecting point for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, um, the, the preposition for, it connects the two passages together. And I just kind of want to go through the logic of what Paul is saying. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, Paul says we should pray for all authorities, all of them. Now, Not only are we praying for their salvation, but it goes beyond that. There's a bigger picture here. We should pray for all authorities that we might have as believers, that the church might have the freedom to proclaim and live out among the people the fullest expression of the Christian faith. Do you see what's going on? Many times we just hear that we should pray for authorities. Um, And it's always kind of wrapped up in their salvation, which, of course, is true. But the idea here goes beyond that. Um, We are the light of the world, or better said, the church collectively is the light of the world. Now, when the church is suffering times of persecution, when the church is underground, in many ways, it's teaching And its lifestyle is also underground. Uh, We can see that, uh, of course, you would notice these things in, for example, uh, during the persecution in Russia, during the Cold War, 
the persecution in the Middle East that goes on today, the persecution in China, the underground church. Now, when that happens, when there's persecution, um, there is not an open declaration to the whole world. Here we are publicly, the church, we're meeting together. Watch us as we love one another. Watch us as we live a different lifestyle with hope. Watch us in our private lives. Watch us in our marriages. Watch us in our families. Listen to what we're saying. When there's no persecution, all that is possible. And we've seen that in the West now for, for many, many, many uh, decades, for centuries, actually. The church has been granted an unprecedented opportunity to live without persecution so that it might openly declare its faith, its doctrine to the unbelieving world, and so that it might live openly before the unbelieving world. Now what are we seeing that is occurring now in the West? The very opposite. Even though we are not at this point put in jail or burned at the stake or executed or exiled, there is a sense that through social media, through entertainment, through everything that has to do with publicity, the church is shut out. And not only is the church shut out, but the world is presenting a different view of the church than what the church actually is. So the church is kind of now hidden in a way, especially with regard to, to the outlets of media. And another message has taken its place that actually slanders and defames the church. Now you can see why it's so important for us to pray for kings and authorities. I've in, in my... Um, in my younger years, when I looked at this passage, chapter 2, uh, that we should pray, in verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, I would always think, but, you know, this world is supposed to be a war zone. We're not supposed to have peace. We're not supposed to be able to live a tranquil life. What is Paul praying for? Well, he's praying for exactly what I've said that kings would have such a disposition toward the church that the church would have freedom to proclaim its message clearly and live out its message before the world. And now, like I said, in the West, we're beginning to see the very opposite. So in verses 1 and 2, we should pray for all authorities so that we might have the freedom to proclaim publicly and live out publicly among the peoples the fullest expression of the Christian faith. Verses 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the logic is this. We should pray that we have peace, that we can live the Christian life and proclaim it fully. Verses 3 and 4. So that all peoples might be saved and come to the full knowledge of Christ. And then verse 5, because the word of the one true God and his appointed mediator is the only way of salvation for all peoples, Jew and Gentile. And so we pray for peace that we can proclaim and live 
so that men can be saved. And the basis of this is there's only one God and only one saving mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, before we go on to verse five, I want to just go back to verse four and look at the order of something that I think we missed before. It says God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, we would think, or at least I would think, that the order here would be reversed. It it seems to me that it would be more logical in better order to say who desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and by the knowledge of the truth be saved. But Paul has it in reverse. Why is that? I think the reason is this. We all recognize, Paul recognized, that men cannot be saved apart from a knowledge of the truth. But we're seeing something absolutely astounding here. The order is this way in order to prove that after we are saved, we need to go on growing in the knowledge of the truth. This is so important to the Christian life and Christian sanctification and the minister of a pastor, the ministry of a pastor, that that you and I are to preach the truth. People have to have a knowledge of the truth. But once they come to a knowledge of the truth so that they can be saved, they need to go on increasing in their knowledge of the truth. And that knowledge, even as it's contained in Scripture, cannot be exhausted in this lifetime. And this is the great task, especially of the pastor teacher. That once someone becomes converted, it's like the journey now begins. And the idea is not just to get people saved with the bare minimum of knowledge, but to take them on into greater and greater understanding and application of the truth. That's one of your greatest responsibilities. Now let's get to to verse 5. He says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, first of all, Paul is dealing um, here with um, the idea of God's work of redemption among not only the Jews, but also among the Gentiles. And as you know, there was a great division throughout biblical history between Gentile and Jew. And the Jew often believed that God was their God to the exclusion of the Gentiles. And Paul is just bringing up what we, well, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He is bringing up the idea that the God of Israel is the God of all men. Even some who appear to have been faithful in the faith of Israel still entertained the ideas that the nations had other gods, inferior gods, weaker gods, but nonetheless other gods. Paul is saying, listen, there is one God, one God of the Jew and one God of the Gentile. And the only way that men can be reconciled to this God, whether they're Jew or Gentile, 
is through a mediator, the mediator, the person of Jesus Christ. Now here he uses the word mediator. Very, very important word. And uh, it comes from actually uh, the Greek word uh, in the root of it. It comes from the Greek word mesos, which means middle, among, or in between. It denotes someone who is a go-between, as we see in English, a reconciler, and by implication, a mediator or an intercessor. And so Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, Jesus Christ is the only bridge between God and man who is alienated from God. He is the mediator, the go-between. Now, Mounts defines a mediator as one that acts between two parties, one who interposes to reconcile two adverse parties, an arbitrator, one who is the medium of communication between two parties, or a mid-party. Now, I want you to see something here that is extremely important. The idea of mediator is not only with regard to our justification, but with regard to everything, absolutely everything in the Christian life. Christ is our mediator in that he is also our redeemer and, our, and the ransom of our redemption. But Christ also lives to intercede for us. Christ is also the mediator of the power and life of God that flows from God into the believer. We see this perfectly in, um, in John chapter 15. So it's not only justification, but it's the Christian life. Christ is the mediator of everything. And without Christ, we have nothing. One of the things that I'm, I'm, um, I say commonly is this. Apart from Christ, we have no part with God. And God has no part with us. Christ is the God-ordained great bridge between God and not just man, but creation itself. Now, I want you to think about something. When we think of the Son of God as mediator, we often think of it solely in terms of, of redemption. But we need to see that the Son has always been the mediator. God created the world through the Son, through the mediation of the Son. God sustains the world through the mediation of the Son. God reveals himself to the world through the mediation of the Son. God saves the world through the mediation of the Son. God will one day judge the world through the mediation of the Son. This is why it is not unbiblical to talk about someone being Christocentric in that everything in our relationship with God has to do with the Son. And again, going back to John 15, this is why not only in our justification, but in the Christian life, the Son is absolutely essential. 
absolutely essential. You never go around the sun. You never go above. You never go under. It is always through the sun. Now, I want us to look for a moment. I want you to go uh, to the book of Job. And I want you to look at chapter 9. And what I want you to see here is the desperation of facing God without a mediator. I want you to see and and when you're preaching to your churches, your great longing is that they see their desperate need of Christ. This is what you want to put before them. Christ is not a little addition to the redemptive plan of God. He's not just the majority. He's everything. He's everything. And apart from his mediation, you and I, God's people, your church, would have no hope whatsoever. If you look in Job chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? How can he? Apart from a vision of a mediator, whether it's Old Testament saints hoping for one or us looking back to the mediator, without the vision of the mediator, we are left in utter despair. We cannot be right before God. And then verse three, if one wishes to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Later on in the book of Job, God's going to tell Job, Job, you know, bind up, uh, uh, gird yourself with your clothing, get ready to fight, come out and talk to me. And in the end, Job is basically putting his hand over his mouth, saying that he spoke foolishly. Today, I see so many people challenging God. I see so many people challenging Christian doctrine, trying to make it absurd. But one day they will be called out of their little protective caves and they will stand before God bare, naked, without a mediator, without a shield. And then they won't dispute with him. Like a dear friend of mine used to say all the time, you mock God now, but one day you will melt before him like a tiny wax figurine before a blast furnace. You will have nothing to respond. Even on the day of judgment, when God condemns the wicked, they will have to raise their hands and swear that the God of all the earth has done right by them. There will be no disputes. Look at verse 12. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? What would you say to him? Who, who could say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. 
Without a mediator, Job recognizes that there's absolutely no hope. Verse 19, if it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. And if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Here we have the two great pillars of power. If you were to stand before God and argue and say, what you're doing to me in judgment is not right, you would soon find out that justice was on his side. And even if justice were not on his side, which it is, but if it were not, he still has all power. So whether it be by justice or by coercion, no one can stand before God, no one can dispute him, and no one can stop him. We go on verse 28. Job says, I am afraid of all my pains. I know that you will not acquit me. I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? There are so many people out there who are toiling with the hope that they will make themselves right before some God, some deity. They are trusting in the flesh. They are hoping in their good works. The only thing that can cure that is a correct view of God. Um, people will oftentimes talk about that men no longer seek salvation because they don't know they're sinners. And they don't know they're sinners because preachers aren't preaching on sin. Well, that's true, but it's not enough. Even the men who know they are sinners, they do not fear. Why? Because knowing your sin is not enough. It's also knowing the holiness of God. I've probably used this illustration before. If, uh, if a mafioso, a, a criminal, a crime boss was arrested by the police, he laughs. They throw him in jail. He laughs. They walk him out toward his trial to go into the courtroom. He's smiling and laughing. Why? He knows the judge. And he knows the judge is just as corrupt as he is. But everything changes when he walks into the courtroom and finds out they have replaced the corrupt judge with a righteous one who fears no man. At that moment, the crime boss is full of terror. You see, he knew he was a sinner, but he thought the judge was just like him. But when he discovers the judge is not like him, then the weight of his sin comes down upon him. Do you see that? It's the same way. People think they're righteous. They see their sin, but they still think they're righteous or good enough. Why? because they have no knowledge of God. They think God is like them. But Job here is very, very careful. He says, I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me. How does a person come to have this attitude? Not merely by seeing their own sin, but by seeing the holiness of God. And how will they do that? 
by spirit-aided gospel preaching. Men preaching the gospel, the attributes of God, the sinfulness of man in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 32, for he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. People today, brothers, and listen to me. People today need to know that God is not like them. That God is not like them. That God is holy and man is not. That God is righteous and man is not. And that God is love. And man is not. And therefore, without an umpire, without some mediator, man cannot come to God. I, I was speaking to a group of students one time and they were rather angry and uh, offended at the gospel. And um, one of them, we were talking about holiness and righteousness. Um, and they had arguments against it. But then I said the primary reason why God sends men to hell is because of love. And they said, that's absurd. And I said, no, it's not. God is a loving God. And they said, well, why then would he send us to hell? I said, because you're not loving people. You're not loving. You're selfish, self-centered, desire for your own. Now, let's go on. He says, Verse 33, there is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. I praise God that the umpire that Job eventually sees from afar, we see clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. But here's what you need to understand, brothers. No one looks for a mediator until they need one. And uh, men by nature do not recognize that they need one. Um, I, I forget which great author it was when um, when he was told he was dying. And uh, it may have been Thoreau. I don't know. But he was on his deathbed and. Someone asked him, have you made your peace with God? And he said, I didn't recognize that I was at war with God. And that is man's great problem. But not only is man at war with God, God is at war with man. So the son is the mediator of all things. Now, here's what I want you to see. This is the scandal, the scandal of Christianity. It's the scandal of the definite article over the indefinite article. I've said this many times. I would be a very popular preacher if I would only say that Jesus is my savior. Or if I only said that Jesus is a savior. But the moment that I say Jesus is the savior, to the exclusion of all other saviors. That my message and my person becomes a scandal. And this is why the, the New Testament church. Well, let's go further back. 
This is why the Jews were such a scandal when they were exiled in the various places where they were exiled. Even when they were in Egypt, it's one of the reasons they were such a scandal. Because all other peoples of the earth have many, many, many gods. But the Jew alone said, no, these are not gods. So to some degree, Jews were considered atheists because they denied the existence of all the gods of the Gentiles. Christians also have sometimes carried the title of atheist. Why? Because they denied all the gods of the Roman Empire. And they said there is only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And this is the great scandal. Um, there have been a lot of, probably over the last several decades, a lot of talk about you know, having these big evangelistic crusades in India and, you know, are showing the Jesus film and then people are asked to raise their hands if they want to accept Jesus and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people do so. But I was uh, on a beach in India, I think it was Bombay or somewhere, one time and I remember there was this wall, it was about a meter high, maybe a little higher, and it went the, almost the full length of, of that beach. And it had tiles that were about this big on the wall of all these Hindu gods. And it just went on forever. And in the midst, you know, every 15 or so tiles, there would be a tile with Jesus painted on it. And then it'd go with more and more Hindu gods and then Jesus again, and more and more Hindu gods and then Jesus, Jesus again. And the problem is, is that Jesus was considered one God, one Savior, one prophet, in the midst of a countless number of gods and prophets and mediators. But the scandal of our faith is that we stand up and say, no, he is the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through him, that no one can be saved by any other name. Now, what's amazing today among your generation is how I'm seeing even this, the most basic truth of Christianity eroded eroded and eroded and sometimes by people who claim to be rather rather orthodox never forget Jesus is the way the truth and the life he is God in the flesh and the only mediator between God and men lately I've been studying Jesus's dialogue with Pilate and uh, in that dialogue at the end Pilate goes what is truth in the ancient rabbinic writings, that question is actually asked. It's amazing. Verbatim. The, the rabbi asks, what is truth? And the answer is, um, he is the living God, the creator of the world. So what we can see there when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, is he's God the creator of the world or the king of the world. Yeah, that's what that's what's so amazing is in this in this dialogue, 
Jesus is explaining to Pilate what kind of king he is, that he is indeed a king. And Pilate says, what is truth? And in the rabbinic writings, when it says, what is truth? The answer is, um, he is the living God, the king of the world. And that's who our mediator is. But he is the only mediator. And if you give that up, not only do you give up Christianity, you give up your own soul. He's the only mediator. Now, let's go to verse six. It says, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Now, this is extremely important because this verse right here answers the question of how Christ became our mediator in redemption or explains the basis of his mediation. Okay, he is a mediator through his redemptive work on Calvary. And those two things cannot be separated. It says who gave himself this uh, this phraseology here, this uh, is used throughout the New Testament with reference to the cross. For example, in Galatians 1.4, Galatians 2.20, Ephesians 5.25, Titus 2.14, this type of language, Christ gave himself, Christ delivered himself over, is in reference to his willingness to submit to the cross. So how did Christ become our mediator? By being willing to give himself up as a ransom and die in the place of his people. Now, the word ransom here, it's very, very important. It's antilutron. Anti means in place of. In place of. Lutron, ransom. From the word, luo, the verb luo, which means to loosen. It denotes a redemption price or ransom paid in the place of another to free them. Now, I want to put special emphasis on the on the word anti. This is so, so very important that this ransom was paid in place of Christ did not merely die for us. This is very important. Christ did not merely die for us. Christ died in our place. The old reformers and old evangelicals would say that Christ died in our law place or Christ died in our stead. It is the idea of substitution and there's no way around it. There's just no way around it. And again, if you take substitution out of the cross, you've not only lost the cross, you've lost your own soul. He did not just die for us. He did not just die on our behalf. He died in our place. He stood where we should have stood. He hung where we should have hung. He was condemned in the place of those who deserved condemnation. Um, this word ransom is defined by Loanita as the means or instrument by which release or delivery is made possible. Now, I want to say something here that's real important. Christ's death 
was truly an expression of God's love. As a matter of fact, Christ's death is the greatest expression of God's love. Secondly, Christ's death is an example that should inspire all of us. Those two things are true. Also, Christ's death is worthy of imitation. The way he reacted to evil and injustice is worthy of imitation. But if you stop there, you have not preached the cross. You have not preached the cross at all. I need more than an example. I need more than something that inspires me. I need someone to be my substitute. I need someone to take my place. I need someone to bear my sin, past, present, and future. I need someone to suffer on my behalf. This is the great... Look, every preacher that I've ever studied throughout history, they were all very different. Different personalities, different delivery styles, and in some cases they differed on their exposition. But of all the great preachers of the world that have been mightily used of God, they all put the greatest amount of emphasis on Christ's substitution. It was the thing Spurgeon fought for possibly more than anything else. And he despised any preaching of the cross that not only denied but downplayed the idea of the vicarious, substitutionary suffering of Jesus Christ. That's where the power is, is explaining that. And you'd be surprised at how few people understand that doctrine. The doctrine of propitiation, of substitution, of ransom. So few people understand it. But brothers, it's what we must make clear. I have had at times... Throughout my many years now, people come up to me with tears who've said the same thing. After I've preached on Christ bearing sin and being crushed under the wrath of God, they have said, you know, Brother Paul, I have believed in Jesus for 20 years, for 30 years. I always believed that his death on Calvary paid for my sins. But I never really understood how him dying on that tree put an end to my sin. I never really understood it. I believed it, but I didn't understand it until tonight. That it wasn't just a whip or a crown of thorns or nails in his hands, but that when he was on that tree, he stood in my place. He bore my sin and all the wrath of God that pertains to me that should have fallen upon me fell upon him. If you if your people are ignorant of this truth, then you need to change your preaching or you need to stop preaching. Because this is the core of our message, substitutionary atonement. It's above everything else. Or at least let me say it this way, without it, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. So now he says As a ransom for all. And we've already touched on this earlier in um, in chapter uh, chapter two. 
uh, in verses 3 and 4, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But I want to just go over a few things here. Christ's ransom is not limited to the Jews, but it extends to the Gentiles. It extends to the whole world. In Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You and I, I don't, I don't think any of you are, are Jews. I'm not. But even for a you know, 21st century uh, Jew, this would be very, very hard to understand. But for the Jews of Paul's day, they were prone to believe that the whole world was divided up into two groups, Jew and Gentile. As a matter of fact, if, if a Gentile was caught outside of the Gentile court and in the temple, it was immediate death. That's just all there was to it. And so when Paul makes this statement, to us it's not real impressive. We think to ourselves, that isn't all that Paul means, it can't be. But this was an extremely radical statement in Paul's day. And this is why many of the Judaizers and others hated Paul with such a passion. Because he stepped across the line. And he said something that all the prophets have said. That God through the Messiah would do a global work and call a people that was not his people, his people. And you see, that's what we have, I believe. When we look at the scriptures, we see Abraham called out. And through Abraham, we see the birth of a nation. But the purpose of that nation, the great purpose the primary purpose of that nation is that that nation would be prepared to bring the Messiah into the world, but bring the Messiah into the world for the world. Because as you get into the prophets, you begin to see that when Messiah comes, all of a sudden that root is going to expand. Those branches are going to expand. And the Messiah's reign would take over the entire world. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So that there's no longer, in that sense, Jew or Gentile. That we are one in Christ. We are brothers in Christ. It's like when, you know, I say something like this. Someone says to me one day, uh, Brother Paul, why are you, you look really upset? I said, I am. They said, why? I said, my, my brother was just thrown in jail. Your brother was just thrown in jail? Yeah. Where? In China. I didn't know you had a brother and I didn't know he was a missionary. But to me, my brother, closer than my own flesh, was thrown in jail. 
Or I have a sister in North Africa whose arm is taken off. She is my sister, closer than my own flesh and blood. I have a people. And that people is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. You see, and that's what Paul is getting to. Christ has created now such a people. Now, as a ransom for all, I just want to say a few things here because we touched on it previously. Christ's ransom is sufficient for all who will come. It is sufficient for everyone who will come, but it is efficient only for those who do come. Those who are shut out from the benefits of Christ's ransom are those who shut themselves out from the benefits of Christ's ransom. Look at there's a I want you to turn to John chapter 10 for a moment. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For whom does he lay down his life? For the sheep. In verse 26, he tells the unbelieving Jews, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You are not of my sheep. There in Christ's own words, we see the perfect balance. In the mystery of God's providence, there is an elect people before the foundation of the world. But everyone who would want to come to Christ can come to Christ. And those who do come to Christ will find that he is all sufficient. Now, I want to read something uh, that I just took down today from John MacArthur. And I think it is just really what was really helpful to me. He writes... The phrase gave himself as a ransom for all is a comment on the sufficiency of the atonement, not its design. I think that's very, very important. Very good statement there. To apply a well-known epigram, the ransom paid by Christ to God for the satisfaction of his justice is sufficient for all, but it's efficacious for the elect only. Christ's atonement is therefore unlimited as to its sufficiency, but limited as to its application. He goes on to say, that does not mean that all will be saved. Again, many are called, but few are chosen. Christ's death was sufficient to cover the sins of all people, but it is applied to the elect alone. The price paid was infinite. And then here's a here's something he says. Um, that I think is extremely, extremely healthy, helpful. He says, the price paid was infinite. If billions more had been added to the number of the elect, Christ would not have been required to suffer one more stroke of divine wrath to pay the price for their sin. I think that is extremely helpful. On the other hand, had there been but one sinner, Seth, Elected of God, this whole divine sacrifice would have been needed to expiate his guilt. So if Christ had only died for one person on this earth, 
he would have had to suffer just as much, not less. But with the suffering that he did accomplish, if billions more were added, it would be sufficient. I think that's a good word. Now let's go on. He says the testimony given at its proper time. What does this mean? The gospel and especially its global implications, the grafting in of the Gentiles, is a great mystery that has now been revealed. Uh, I want to just give you a few passages to think about. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that he might receive the adoption as sons. There was a specific time in God's redemptive plan in which he determined that Messiah would be revealed and the gospel would make its global expanse. Why God chose such a way is beyond our understanding and should be beyond our meddling. If he chose to do it, it's right. And how do you know it's right? Because he chose to do it. In Ephesians 3, 3 through 6, by revelation there was made known to me, Paul writes, the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 2,000 years ago, God brought about the redemption of Israel. Everyone prior, everyone in Old Testament history that was ever saved was saved through that work of redemption. But now you and I, have been brought to a place where that redemption has gone global. And in this, we can see a, we should have a great sense of urgency. We live in a time when the gospel is to be preached to all the nations, and that should change us as men. That should evoke obedience from us, devotion, dedication, the willingness to sacrifice. Paul writes in verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says, For this I was appointed. Do you know there's a way in which that applies to you? The King James has, For this I was ordained. For this one thing I was brought into this world. For this one thing I was born again. For this one thing I was called into the ministry. To do what? To preach the gospel and to teach it. To expound it. To explain it. That is my job. In Paul's words here we get a sense of urgency. Since the time of Abraham until the coming of Christ, God's work of redemption was basically focused on one people group. At the time of Christ, the prophets were fulfilled and now the gospel is to be taken to the world. 
We live in a time right now where, you know, especially some of you in Canada and Europe and in some parts of the United States, you don't even know if you'll be able to preach the gospel in another year. You don't even know what's happening. But it's not a time to, uh, you know, circle the wagons and hide. It's a time to preach like we've never preached before. We must work while it is day. Night comes when no man works. But also we need to realize that you and I are some of the most privileged people on the planet that have ever lived because we live at a time when the gospel, God's good news, is to be taken to the world, to the entire world. And that changes a man if he believes it. It causes him to sacrifice willingly. There's a sense of urgency, but there's also a sense of singleness of focus in Paul. You know, Dwight L. Moody said one time, do not give me a man who's good at doing many things. Give me a man who's great at doing one thing. How few men, how few ministers of Christ have devoted themselves to this one thing. To understanding the gospel and making the gospel known. Not many. But I can tell you this. Those that have have been used by God to change the world. We're not called upon to learn little life principles to make people happy. We're not called upon uh, to help people get their best life now. We are called upon to give our lives to the study of the gospel, the proclaiming of the gospel and the living of the gospel. You know, you know, you men know that you need to be very careful that you do not waste your life in sin and waste your life in vanity. You know that. But there's something else you need to know. Don't waste your life in the good things. Don't waste your life in the better things. Give your life to the best thing. There are preachers and pastors without number. As a matter of fact, if we put most of them on a boat and put them in an island where there were no people, the gospel would probably advance a lot quicker without them. We don't need any more of that. What we need are men who know the gospel which means they know the scriptures. Men who live the gospels, that live the scriptures, and men who preach it. That's what we need. Above everything else, that's what we need. And that's what we have so few of today. Men totally devoted to that. Paul says, for this I was appointed. There's a common maxim out there that says if you want to be an expert in anything, it requires 10,000 hours of, of study and practice. 10,000 hours. If you want to know the scriptures, 
10,000 hours. You have been called to be an expert in the knowledge of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, and the living out of the gospel. That's what you've been called to do. That's what you've been appointed to do. And that's what Paul says. He says, for this I was appointed. The word literally means I was put in the place. I was ordained. I was appointed. You were born for this time. You were born. Spurgeon wasn't born for this time. Dwight L. Moody wasn't born for this time. Leonard Ravenhill wasn't born, born for this time. Jonathan Edwards wasn't born for this time. You were born for this time. You were appointed, literally put, placed where you are in this time to carry out the same task that the Apostle Paul was given. To study the gospel, to live the gospel, and to preach the gospel. I've written here, the greatness of the appointment is dependent upon the greatness of the one who appoints and the greatness of the task that has been appointed. Who has appointed you? Not a committee, not a church. God himself has appointed you. What has he appointed you to do? Wait on tables, fix people's lives, give them their best life now? No, save their eternal soul and the eternal soul of a nation and the eternal soul of the world. So your appointment is great. It is great. Second Timothy four, one and two. Let's look at that for a moment. Look at the language here in second Timothy four. I solemnly it is a solemn thing. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and outs of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You were appointed in the same way. You were appointed, solemnly appointed in the presence of God and in the presence of Jesus, who will judge the world. Yes, well, let me start again. You need to hear it again. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now, you and I were not called to be apostles. That is true. And so sometimes we can look at Paul's calling and think it rather extraordinary with little application to us. But Paul is talking to Timothy here. And Timothy is just like us. And Paul says, look, you've been solemnly charged in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the world. Now, when when the world sees you, they do not see this. If you were to tell them that this has happened to you, they would laugh at you. When you look in the mirror, it might appear laughable. 
But we're not called to look in a physical mirror. We're called to look in the word of God. And the word of God says that God takes that which is not and makes it into something. He takes that which is base, ignoble, and makes it noble. And that's what he's done with us. And we need to claim it. We need to stand on it. And we need to live in light of it. We shouldn't have timid and fearful spirits. We shouldn't say, oh, no, this is not talking about me. No, we need to stand up and say, so be it. If it's what God says, so be it. I have been solemnly charged to preach the gospel, which means also I've been solemnly charged to study it and to live it and to know it. Now, Paul says that he was uh, appointed a preacher. The word here literally means a herald, a public messenger, something like a town crier. So imagine Paul as a herald riding on a horse, rushing into a crowd and crying out the message of the king, the proclamation of the king. But not only has Paul been called as a preacher, but he also says he's been called as a teacher, an instructor. So what is the difference between preaching and teaching? Well, I've read several good illustrations, one of them coming from Piper and others. Um, Imagine that there's a crowd of people and they're all in captivity. And there's a great war going on to free them, but they don't know how the war is going. They're slaves, they're prisoners, they're in chains. And all of a sudden they see this on the horizon, this horse running toward them with a rider on it. They can't make out who it is or what he looks like or anything. They can't hear his voice. But as he comes closer, they can see he's riding full speed. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs. And as he draws near, they finally hear him. He goes, the king is won. The king is won. You're free. You're free. Your bonds have been removed. The king has won. The king has triumphed. The king has overcome. You're free. You're free. That's the work of a herald. He comes rushing in on a mighty horse, screaming at the top of his lungs, a strong, powerful man telling you you've been set free. And then behind him, at a distance, trotting very slowly, is a little man um, with books under his arms, little spectacles on, riding on a little donkey, and he's trotting really slow, and he's coming up behind the man on the flying steed. He's the teacher. And he comes up and says, Now, the herald has proclaimed to you that you are free. The king has won. Now I'm going to sit with you and explain to you all the conditions of your freedom and what it means to live in this new kingdom that belongs to the king. Now, there are some men who are more herald than teacher, other men who are more teacher than herald. But heralds must also be teachers and teachers must also be heralds. We need, even though there are some men given to one thing, at least with prominence, 
These things need to be combined in both of us, in all of us. There are so many guys that sometimes they they consider themselves to be teachers and every one of their sermons is like going through a history class. They need to change. There are other guys that um, they clean off a spot on the platform and throw a fit for an hour and scream at the top of their lungs and and say (laughs) they need to change. What we need are men who proclaim and herald the good news, but also have the ability to explain it, to sit down and work out all the details. How then shall we live? And I think in both the Old and New Testament, apart from our Lord, the greatest example is Ezra. You're all familiar with the passage in uh, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Let me ask you a question. Have you set your heart to study the word of God? Have you set your heart to practice it? Have you set your heart to proclaim it, to teach it? Because if not, you need to separate for a while, get on your knees and seriously consider the validity of your calling. Because this is what we do. This is what we do. Now, we're all very different. Um, not all of us are an R.C. Sproul or a John MacArthur or a Charles Spurgeon. I'm certainly not. I was talking to Michael Haken the other day on the phone and I just, uh, I was amazed at how much he knew and how he could so quickly answer my questions. Or I'll call somebody like a Sam Waldron. I'll never be a Sam Waldron. But with the gifts that have been given to me, I am required to set my heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice the law of the Lord, and to teach the law of the Lord. And Paul says, finally, as a teacher in faith and truth. So what he's talking about here is saving faith in the truth of the gospel. That's his job to teach people how to have what it means to possess a saving faith in the truth of God. Hendrickson writes, Paul and his message were used by God as a means to bring to the minds and hearts of the Gentiles living faith in the truth of the gospel. Albert Barnes writes, Paul was appointed to instruct the Gentiles in faith and in the knowledge of the truth. And so remember, this is our primary job. Now, um, we're going to end there. But I have a question for you that is rhetorical. I don't expect you to answer it. How much time every day? Are you spending 
in the study of God's word? With what kind of diligence are you practicing God's word and repenting when you find yourself not practicing God's word? And how much time are you spending teaching God's word? And, and let me let me share something with you about that. That that people, they just overlook. Um, I'll hear pastors go, well, you know, I have business meetings, I have deacons meetings, I have counseling, I have all these different things I have to do, visit people in the hospital, everything. I, you know, I can't give my whole day to to the study and proclamation of God's word. Well, here's the problem. Um, when you proclaim, when, when you're in the in the pulpit, what are you doing? You're to be expounding God's word. As you walk through your daily life, the way you treat your children, your wife, uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ, what is your life supposed to be doing? Expounding God's word, giving a living exposition of scripture. When you go into a deacon's meeting, I mean, pastors usually aren't very good at finance or uh, figuring out how to fix the plumbing in the church. So what is your job in a deacon's meeting? To expound God's word in every given situation and decision that has to be made in that deacon's meeting? You may not know anything about how to finance a loan for the church, but you can guide them on the biblical principles that are around it. You can expound those. When you're visiting someone's home, what are you doing? Just talking about soccer? You're to be expounding the word. There is a sense in which everything the minister of Christ does is an exposition of God's word. If you look at it that way, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Now, we're going to, uh, in our next time, I want you to look at something just really, really quick uh, in 1 Timothy. Um, verse 8, which we're going to start with next time is really applicable to a lot of what's going on today. The division between ethnic groups, the idea of wokeism, the idea of uh, prejudice and racism, the things that are being taught in the church. Remember, Paul's entire scope here is Paul is talking about th these things in the context of Gentiles. The Jews hated the Gentiles and the Gentiles hated the Jews. But what does he say? He's going through here saying God has done a saving work among all peoples. That's what he's teaching. All peoples. He is doing and has done a saving work. Gets to verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. What is the foundation 
of our peace in the body of Christ? What is it that gives peace between Jew and Gentile, Roman and Greek? Between the rich and the poor, what is it that unites us? It's the fact that there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. That's what it is. The world's not going to give us a solution. The world is not going to give us a solution, men. And do not use worldly solutions. The answer is here. Is here. And and that's what we need to see. We are a people. We have a people. And right now, all over the world, anyone who by true faith calls upon the name of the Lord is closer to us than any, any relative that's only relative of flesh and blood. Paul believed this to such a degree that he says, I no longer want to know anything about anybody. I don't need to know what ethnicity they are, their background, their economic status. I don't care. I don't need to know. I only need to know one thing. Are they in Christ? Because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's it. Without removing the beauty of differences and ethnicities, we need to realize that our unity is in the person of Christ. Everything is there and everything works itself out from there. And if there are things to be changed, if there are things to be done, and there are, there always will be. It begins with the cross. It begins with what God has done in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see here. He says, I want the men in every place, no matter who they are, no matter their background, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their past. I want all men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. Without wrath and dissension, this wrath and dissension is not toward God. It's the wrath and dissension that would have normally been there between Jew and Gentile that it no longer has any room or place among God's people because of Jesus Christ. And this is extremely, extremely important. All right, well, God bless you, men. I've got to get to uh, another meeting. Um, It's been a joy. Next time, um, I'd like to go a little longer and do some questions and answers after we finish, if you have time. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness, for your love. Please help us, Lord, to live in the reality of Christ's redemption. To be teachers and examples of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.